Hi there, welcome to the Optional Facts. My name is Dave Tomlinson, and you are here because you know that there is a lot of fact to be told about how black culture has changed the world. You are here because you want to hear some truth, and most likely you're here because you want to hear the second part of the interview with Kyle Daniel Bay. Kyle uh, started us off a couple of weeks ago about how he grew up in Vermont, or at least started out in Vermont, and then ended up in Michigan, where he, you know, started to lead a life. And we finished off the first interview with him about to be jumped into the Vice Lords. Now, we all have an idea of, well, (laughs) maybe we don't all have an idea, but some amount of us have an idea of what it means to be jumped into a gang. And Kyle's going to talk about that from his perspective. And uh, so we'll hear that story. Not right away. It's a little bit into the interview, but it's worth sticking around for. But we are going to pick up with the idea of Kyle formally joining a gang. That was probably one of my more more stellar bad decisions. But I I didn't think so at the time because, you know, Everybody involved was my friends, so I thought. Once I got jumped in, that dropped me into a whole other level of street involvement, which doesn't seem like it can really get worse, but it does. And, um, I mean, we were a little more organized than other groups. You know, we had weekly meetings and check-ins and... You had to learn literature, and you just, you know, like I said, it was more organized. And if you know anything about the gangs out of Chicago specifically, they have developed a whole curriculum of information and just stuff to kind of help them along with indoctrinating people into their organizations. And I fell into it wholeheartedly. So after that happened, you know, things just kind of picked up. I started going to Central. And at the time, there weren't very many vice lords there. There were only a few gangster disciples there. So we really, even though we're considered natural enemies, we really weren't too concerned about fighting each other. Um... And some of the other crews, being that I grew up with a lot of them, I didn't have a lot of problems with them. But they made it known that, you know, there was there was now a delineation between me and them. And <clears throat> there were there were a few altercations. And one of them involved some guys that I grew up with in my neighborhood. One of them's dead now. But they decided that one of our one of our younger brothers was going. They felt like he was a traitor to them because he he became the vice lord. Now we were all Dexter boys. We all but we were from different areas of Dexter, and so they were going to jump in in the boys' locker room. He found out about it. He was able to get out of school, 
and he came to me, and I was like, well, look, I'm going to go get the brothers, and we'll, we'll come deal with it. I went and got the guy that was running our particular group. He put a, call, a couple calls out. We had a couple brothers show up. And so he drove down on in the middle of broad daylight, in the middle of the street, about four carloads of dudes with guns. And that was, he told, and, and they basically told him, they were like, man, if y'all mess with our little brothers, we'll kill you. And they was like, man, we just, and they was like, no, they're not even playing with y'all no more. Y'all keep saying, y'all keep running off the mouth, keep doing this, keep doing that. Let this be the end of it, or it won't be the end of it. Well, it wasn't the end of it. Because they had guns, too. <laughs> like I said, we grew up together. So, um, I got into it with a couple of with, with, with a couple of the same dudes at a basketball game. And being that I managed to go from school to school to school, I had actually gotten cool with people from a lot of different neighborhoods. And there were a lot of different neighborhoods represented at Central High School. And so I was cool with members from various gangs. And most of the guys that came from the gangs that were farther away from the school kind of banded together because there weren't as many of them as opposed to the gangs that were from that neighborhood. And when we got into this fight, it was at a basketball game. And me and me and one of my brothers, we were, we were sitting there, and we were we were arguing back and forth. And because everything had kind of died down and been peaceful, we didn't really think these guys wanted to start anything. But one of them grabbed my guy by his neck, and so by his throat, and. uh he wasn't going for that, so he fired on him, hit him in his eye, and next thing you know, the four or five of us tumbling down the bleachers fighting. And because it's a because it's a, because it's the inner city high school, there are police there, there are security guards there. And my coach, because I was on the track team, he actually literally picked me up out of the fight and threw me over the end of the bleachers trying to keep me from going to jail that night. Well, me being the super bright individual I am, I come charging right back around the front of the bleachers and jump right back in the fight. <laughs> so we ended up with a standoff, partially in the middle of the basketball game. Of course, we didn't disrupt the whole game and all that. That's when the police come in. And it's not just the police, it's gang squad. When I tell you gang squad and the gang squad precinct was probably the most hated precinct in the city, when it came to young people, I there's no exaggeration. We hate these jokers with a passion. And the reason why, because they're gang squad. And gang squad didn't play any games. They they they, they beat us up. They you know, it, they didn't feel any tactic was beneath them in dealing with us. And we hated him right back. So we're in the back room. And remember I was telling you that there's, there's always a snitch? <laughs> mm. 
So we're sitting there, and see, the other thing about young people is adults understand that young people can't leave stuff alone. They can't let people have the last word, and they play on that, and they prey on that, especially in a situation like this. And so I don't know who said something first. I can't remember. But all I know is, one of them was like, oh, you old Dexter-ass with me, da-da-da-da-da. The next one was like, oh, you old Vice Lord motherfucker, da-da-da-da-da. And Gang Squad dude was like, hold it. Vice Lords? This ain't Chicago. Calculated. Right? Next thing you know, it's off and running. It's back and forth. It's that then the third. And I'm sitting over there. I'm sitting right behind my dude, and he arguing, and they arguing, and I'm, and I'm quiet. Because I, I, I peeked it. I understood what, exactly what just happened. So when I got fed up with it, I kicked it. And the gang squad dude looked at me. And I just looked at him. The dude looked around. He's like, man, what, what you kicked me for? I said, shut the fuck up. He looked at me. He was like, all right. And he didn't say nothing else. Which catapulted me to a whole nother level of scrutiny and I became a squad, right? So now they're still talking, but we're not talking, right? So then to make things more interesting, they decide, okay, we'll put them all in the back of the squad car. Well, the back of the squad car, remember the old Caprice Classics? Yep. Big boxy car. Well, a lot of the police had them in Detroit. I don't know about anywhere else, but a lot of police had them. Well, they had one, but it didn't have a back seat. Okay? So they crammed six of us? Yeah, they crammed six of us into the back of the Caprice Classic and had two guys laying across the laps of four other guys. Now, it's only me and him. There's only two vice lords in the back of this car, and then there's four Dexter boys. Okay? And we all know each other, and we were all just fighting less than an hour ago, you know? So now we're in this cozy little backseat, and uh, they, take us, they take us to gang squats. They just put us all in the same cell. It's like, man, what I had forgotten was I, have, I, I also had a penchant for carrying knives. And I had a lock blade on it. And one of the guys, he's steady talking, he's steady talking, he's doing all this. He, he, he's just doing too much. And like I said, we grew up together, so, you know, I don't feel any compulsion about telling him, man, shut up, bro. He saw a female police officer and tried to hit on her. And I'm like, dude, you are either stupid or you got a death witch, but you're not taking us with you. So he tried to he tried to base up at me. And I told my man that I had the knife, but I didn't tell any of them because they were just all telling on each other, right? But again, being hot headed, not thinking, I whipped the knife out, popped it open, I will cut you in this bullpen and they won't you know Oh my god, he's straight at the door. Oh, Police, he got a knife. Oh, my God. Da, 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 da. So, 
even his guys are looking at him now like, dude, what is you doing, right? So we kind of played musical chairs with the knife, and then one of us hid the knife. And they come in, and because he had already been cutting up, they don't really, really believe it. they just like, all right, well, you know, if they stab you, let us know, right? And then they walked off. And so they call us up one by one. They want to interview us. They want to videotape us. They want to do this and that. Uh, I find out what phone books are for. And the thing is, my parents had to come get me. Right. And so uh, they had to, they, oh, my God. My father comes to get me. My mother comes to get me. They pay my bail. And, um, it was all bad. that way. You were talking about being in, I think you were talking about being in the police station and um, there was like a, a knife that had been hidden. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, that was not one of my finest moments, but, uh, long story short, um, they never, they never even worried about it. Because dude made himself so obnoxious that they were like, you know what? If y'all get tired up and started, we'll just we'll just kill him to mess afterwards. Which was, I guess, that goes to the mindset of the police a little bit and how they actually viewed us. I mean, there was always there were always little indignities that we had to endure dealing with the various precincts and police from being made to sit on on a curbside in the middle of the night in in new clothes to being beaten up with flashlights to having our money and drugs taken from us as opposed to them taking us to jail. I mean it was just life life with them was always a crapshoot, you know, and a lot of people don't get that. When you're when you're a teenager, you don't. Most teenagers don't have a a great deal of respect for authority as it is anyway. And when they grow up, where the uh, the, the supposed authorities act in in act in a manner that's more reminiscent of how you act than they, than they do as an authority figure, you don't have a great deal of respect for that. Right. You know? So you've been, and, you've been literally beaten up by cops? Yeah. Okay. On more than one occasion. Before I was 17. Oh. You know? And I, I, I don't know very many of my contemporaries that weren't. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a whole subset of young people that, and, and adults now that have never, that they grew up in the city that have never experienced that. But right. everybody knows a story. They know a story or they know someone it happened to or, or they've witnessed it, you know? I mean, it was nothing for them because, because they always had police cars stationed at um, every high school when classes were letting out, you know? And this is this includes the best high schools, you know? So, I mean, when that is the attitude of the police, 
And, that, and, and the thing is, it's also the attitude of the administration that they felt that they needed the police to be there, you know? And it got to the point where you even, I mean, even even my sisters in the elementary school, there, there was a police car that would, that, would, that would park in front of their school when they were letting out of school. And, and so, I mean, and the thing was they said they were there to keep the little, little, little kids from being molested. But honestly, I was never sure that that's what they were there for. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to jump on the little brothers and sisters of my friends and the people I grew up with and, and my sister's friends. That, 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 I don't care what I'm doing in the streets. That just isn't. That, that there is no purpose to that, you know. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that you have all kinds of people out here, and some, and they're snatching children up, and they do, and they were doing it back then. But the the the, the amount of whatever negativity was happening to me never seems to have justified the police presence that they that that it garnered, you know. Right. So, I mean, that was what it was. But yeah, I mean, I didn't have a very good relationship with the police, and I and I remember um, the first real case that I was involved in, where they actually came and picked me up. A friend of mine had actually shot somebody, and he came to the house, and they were talking to my father. A friend of mine, of course, had, had given him my name and address, and he was in the back of the car, and he was waiting on. They were waiting. They came right around to my house, but because um, there was a few, a few of us that were there, and my father turned to me when they told him what it was about, and he said to me, "He said, tell them everything or tell them nothing." And and the cops, <laughs> one of the cops looked at my father and said. I don't believe you just told him that in front of us. <laughs> and my father said, my father said he has a choice to make. And there are consequences that go with whichever choice he, he, he chooses to make. I'm just, I'm just making it clear to him what his choices are. And that was the end of it. They, they put me in handcuffs and walked me out to the squad car and took me to the precinct. And, I mean, they had, I, they literally took me downtown and had a detective talk to me and whatnot. My friend eventually ended up going to prison behind that case. But, um, yeah, that was, that was my first taste of, my first few tastes of the police, you know. Right. And there was nothing, there was never anything positive about my interactions with the police, right? Other than the fact that, other than the fact that I had an uncle who was a cop, and, and I love my uncle, and but at fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, he wasn't one of my favorite people. <laughs> you know, so I'm kind of I'm I'm torn as to which direction to go because it's like there's there's two kind of follow up questions I have. Like I want to. At some point, I, I feel like there's going to be more of a conversation in here because you've just got you're you're really good and descriptive at, at painting this picture, and it's 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 really great. Um, love to get to the part where you actually end up in jail, but I would also love to revisit. You mentioned a few times about the gang squad 
and it sounds like there's probably a story or two in there about them. Um, But also, you mentioned with the gang that you got um, jumped into them, and I, you know, you hear stories of what that means, and part of it is just like, all right, I'd like to find out exactly what that means when you get jumped into a gang from someone who's been through it. So you can choose between those three where you want to go, but I'd love to get them. Certain, certain, certain sweet. Um, getting jumped in for me, I mean, it, it, it involves different things with different gangs. Okay. But generally for, for males, there is a component of getting whooped on. And for me, I actually got, I actually got jumped in once and then I got what was called blessed in afterwards because we found out that the process by which I was, I was brought over the first time wasn't necessarily the way we we were supposed to have done things, right? And remember, this is an organization that, this is a street gang organization that um, is in multiple cities, started in Chicago, has been around, whew, the Vice Lord started in the 40s and the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. They're, they're, they're some of the oldest street gangs in the country. Wow. And... Uh, there's a couple books about them um, that have been written over the years. I think the last one was written in the 70s. The last one specifically about them was written in the 70s, but there are other books that, that make mention of them that have been written since then. But um, what they did was they told me, okay, well, you have this task. The task was to pick up seven pennies off the floor in, in my homeboy's basement. The thing is, while you're trying to pick up these pennies, these two guys are going to be beating you up. Can't swing back. You got to pick up the pennies, and it's not going to stop until all the pennies are picked up, right? Or you tap out, at which point you probably would have got stomped out and then thrown out the door, right? So that's what I did, and they picked ironically enough, the guy I told you about that, that, that punched me in my eye mm-hmm. in front of my neighbor's dogs, he was one of them. And the other one was a friend of mine who I grew up with who was kind of a bruiser. So I got I got two guys that are much bigger than me basically kicking the tar out of me while I'm trying to find these, these seven little pennies in um, this guy's basement. And uh, the thing that got him was I figured out because I was looking and I had six pennies and I was looking for the seventh and I realized that the guy that was orchestrating it that was just sitting there watching everything go go on had never moved. Hmm. Which seemed strange to me considering I was getting beat all over his basement and all he did was pretty much sway out the way, Right. And then I realized he was standing on the seventh city. Right. You know, he it's not that he didn't want to see. He didn't want. He didn't want me to get in, but he didn't think I was going to be smart enough to figure it out. And if I wasn't, then he didn't want me anyway. Right. right. I got the seventh city, but um, again, like I like I said, you know, I later found out that that wasn't even supposed to happen. But, I mean, 
I've watched other guys have to get in a circle and, and take a beating for five, ten minutes without have, without fighting back. I've watched guys walk lines and take a beating. I've watched guys box with two and three guys in the street, you know, to get in. It's different, and it may be different depending on the individual or different depending on the game, you know. Um, girls, I, I never... I never was going to be involved in bringing over girls because they generally took advantage of that situation, and I wasn't going to be part of that. That was something else. That was something else for me. There were just certain lines I wouldn't cross, and I think that the fact that I was willing to stand up at such a younger age and say, I'm not going to do that, um, garnered me a little bit of respect from the guys around me. You know, um, one of the things, one of the things the guys used to do was get sexual favors from women when, when they were selling drugs. Never did that. Didn't like it, you know. And if I saw, if the guys I knew were engaged in that, I generally didn't go hanging around them too much. You know, I might hang around them on the block or whatever, but if I thought something like that was going to happen, I was gone. There was, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about that for me, you know. Didn't want to be part of it, and I didn't want to even acknowledge it to a certain to a certain extent. You know what I mean? So, why? Like, if you're if if there's some part of you that is okay with selling drugs and affecting someone's life to the degree where they are addicted to whatever it might be, and you're okay with getting in fights, why the line with sex? Um, for me, for me, I think it was two reasons. One, I was, I was raised always to protect my sisters, you know? And the one thing I knew from, the one thing I knew, and, and I don't think I ever, I really understood this from, a conscious level, but I knew it on a visceral level. I knew that men a lot of times use sex as a weapon against women. Okay? Mm. Um, but like I said, that wasn't a conscious thought. It was just that I didn't like abusing women. You know, I I, I didn't fight girls. I didn't, you know, I was, I was respectful to them. And in a lot of ways, that caused me problems because I wasn't as disrespectful to the young ladies that I was growing up around as my friends and contemporaries were. And so they took that as a deficit. They looked at that as a weakness in some ways, you know. Um, as a matter of fact, the girl that was on my case, she was my girlfriend for a while. And... I had a problem with the fact that they used to call her a bitch because her name, her nickname was Little Bit. And so her friends used to call her Little Bitch and they all used to laugh about it, but it used to piss me off. And we would argue at the, and, and to the point where people, where other people would be like, man, y'all need to either need to come to some kind of a resolution on this or y'all need to stop messing with each other. But it was just one of those things because I felt it was a respect issue, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, but at the same time, like you said, I'm still, 
running around selling dope. I'm still and let's not be let's be as clear as possible. Selling dope was never my primary focus. It was right around here that Kyle and I had to take a bit of a break. Uh, we had a couple of things to attend to. When we came back, you know, when you rejoin a conversation, it's hard to pick up exactly where you left off from, and this is no different. But Kyle picked up and was more of a reflective mood about life and people. Well, people make the assumption that um, if you think one thing, you do one thing, you say one thing, you can't. You can't contradict it. Well, we contradict ourselves all the time, you know? And we make allowances, we make exceptions. We do what we feel in the moment more more often than we realize, and we don't realize that it doesn't always uh, jive with everything that we say or believe or, or, or say that we hold dear. You know, uh-huh. um, and I think that's a lot of it. And I think that people make the choices that they make oftentimes because they feel like they have no other choices to make as opposed uh-huh. to making the choices that, that are actually there. Um, having studied sociology a little bit in one of the programs I was in in, um, in prison and in college, uh, I know about intersectionality of issues and things of that nature. And I've come across those concepts and, and, and I've tried. And this is just some of the information that has caused me to be a little more introspective about who and what I am, you know? Sure. why I make the decisions I make and, and, and say the things that I say and do the things that I do. Because I want I want to be more consistent with myself. But at the same time I wanna be I wanna know that at the heart of things I really hold the 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 feelings that I do. But I also want to know that I have the right and I have the ability to change my mind. I try to leave room for myself to be, to be, I try not to be as hard on myself as people can be, you know? And in not being as hard on myself, I can give other people license when they do things that I think are contradictory or whatever, you know? Because it's like, yes, yes, I do that too, you know? Right. As opposed to, oh, you're a hypocrite, you're this, you're that, and the other. Okay, no, that's that's never what I want to be. I never want to be that guy, right? You know, because of all of these things. And and honestly, I was thinking about a lot of this stuff in high school. I didn't realize it, but I was. And I had friends that were thinking about some of this stuff in high school, and we used to have these conversations. Mama, my mama brings up conversations I used to have with some of my best friends. It was like, y'all were talking about stuff that was way above y'all and what most people consider to be way above teenagers. You know? And she's right. You know? 
But most people don't realize that teenagers talk about a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that they think are adult issues. And teenagers are like, man, adults are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because because they forget they were teenagers too. Part of what started my role to transformation also was the vice world. And I, mean, I have to come back to this because people don't understand there. Some of those groups, there is a very real self-examinatory thread that runs through them. Okay, but only the ones, only the deeper thinkers, only the ones that look at the world and see the world and say this is not the way things are supposed to be are the ones that start looking for this stuff. And what happened was, in the 70s, some of the groups out of Chicago started mixing and mingling with various Islamic groups. Okay? And we're not talking about Orthodox Sunni and Shiites and all that stuff. We're talking about some of the more fringe groups like Nation of Islam, more Science Civil America, the later mm-hmm. became the, 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 seven, the, the five percenters, that type of stuff. Right. But they started incorporating some of their literature into their writings and their teachings, right? And you tell young people, oh, well, you got to memorize this, you got to know this, that, that, and the third. Some people are like, yeah, right. And then when you're in a gang situation, you tell them that, and you back it up with, physical violence. They're like, oh, this is a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what I did. And so I was reading this stuff. And not long after that, Spike Lee came out to Malcolm X. Mm. And I was already on my road to prison. Um, I was afraid I was on my road to the cemetery. And so when I saw Malcolm X and I saw the transformation, because I had read the book two or three times in school, for school, but actually seeing it on the screen and seeing Denzel play that character the way he did, it spoke to me. And in the course of maybe two or three months, I saw that movie like six times. There's a scene in there where he's on his way, well, he's actually in Saudi Arabia, and he goes into the mosque, and he's making prayer. And he's reciting in Arabic the first chapter of the Holy Quran, which is called the Al-Fatiha. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. Not, like, I, yes, not a lot. <laughs> well, this is one of the things that I had been told I needed to memorize. And, of course, I had to memorize it in English, but be that as it may, I had memorized it, and I was and I was blown away. I was like, oh, my God. He's reciting the house. Like, yeah. Oh, my God. What is this? What, where is this? So I started looking for it. And so I was talking to some of the other guys. They were like, yeah, you got to get a hold of Quran if you want to know what that's about. 
and ring the bell. So I got a hold of Quran, and my mother was like, what is, what is going on with you? And I was like, I'm through easy pork. <laughs> she was like, yeah, right? Because I was, I was like eating almost a pack of bacon a day. And my father found out. Then my mother got into it about something that she was kicking me out the house yet again. And I was living, I was in my father's house, and he was like, you know what? You're not going to be learning, that, learning about that up under my roof. And I was like, well, maybe I, won't, maybe I won't be up under your roof then. And that caused a very serious breach between me and him, which had already been developing for years. And so I managed to talk my way back into my mother's house. And then I went from there and went and stayed with a couple of friends of mine. Because one, the other thing was there, was, there was a very real part of me that knew that with the stuff that I had going on, I needed to leave my family's homes, you know? There had been incidents where, especially after my parents split, my mother moved into another neighborhood. And it's cool when I'm going to a school and both of us are outside of our neighborhood, but... That neighborhood had its own gang, and there were a bunch of guys over there that didn't want to dex the guy, oh, who happens to think he's a vice lord, in their neighborhood. And by this time, I had also met the guy who eventually ended up shooting, and that relationship was developing. And so, and I say I, I, I say that because I say that that way because I take ownership for his death. I never argued about it in court, but the thing was, I wasn't the one that actually killed him. But once I had 20 years in, once I had 25 years, or once I had more than, or once I had more than 15 to 18 years, I can't remember when I filed my first commutation. It was like, I've done the time for the murder. They're not going to reopen it for me to declare my innocence. So I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to move forth. I'm going to take ownership of it. And maybe through my taking ownership, I will find a way out. Okay. And Michigan's laws are draconian compared to the other states. But, um, and so there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of hope for that. But for me, in my, my thinking, my rationale, that was the only way it was going to happen. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So I'm having these problems in these neighborhoods, and I know i got to leave my family's homes. Got my girlfriend, who at this time is the old girl I was just telling you about. And we're having problems. I met old boy. But the only thing that was going good in my life was this thread of self-discovery. And so I decided that uh, I was going to keep following it. And my mother was... Support him. She was like, look, whatever gets you out the street, whatever gets you, keeps you from dying, I'm good with it. You know? And I was still bouncing from, from house to house to house. 
And at the end of my junior year in high school, I was still at Central High School. Oh, at the beginning of my senior year, excuse me. Over the course of the summer, our main rival, the GDs, the Gangster Disciples, had been recruiting heavy in my neighborhood. When I come back to school, it's still only a handful of vice lords, but now it's a great big old bunch of GDs. And just like any any group that, that thinks they got the numbers, they decided they were going to stake their claim to how things ran in Central. And me being who I am, I'm like, man, I'm not going for that. I don't care who y'all are. <laughs> and, and although it wasn't necessarily the smartest move, it was, it was the only move because anybody else in my situation, if they wanted to keep their respect, they would have done the same thing. Right. You know? And so I told them, I was like, look, man, y'all can get what y'all can get, y'all can put all these boys down, but at the end of the day, they're still my neighborhood, bro. You know, and I mean, we take ownership. We we actually believe that that this is ours. You know, we don't. We know that we don't own anything. We know that we're tearing stuff up. But at the end of the day, we're staking claim to it, and it is what it is. So they, of course, objected to that. And what sparked it off for me was there was a guy from another gang that we were affiliated with. He was a Mexican, and. He had, got, he had become what's called a Latin count over the summer. He comes back. His girlfriend comes to school one morning, and she's got a blue bandana tied around her head because she didn't have time to do her hair. But he felt that was disrespectful because blue was the color of GDs. He snatched it off her head, he put it on the ground, and stepped on it. Well, the GDs in his class didn't like that. They told him, you going to pay for that. He was like, yeah, whatever. Word gets back to me. I go talk to the head GD. I'm like, look, man, in my neighborhood, he under my protection, can't touch him. He's like, man, we can touch whoever we want because it ain't but a handful of y'all. I said, do we have to go through this again? And I referenced all the stuff that had happened the year before. He's like, yeah, but the situation didn't change. Anybody that, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, anybody that thinks that there's no politics in high school, they, they don't remember high school very well, hmm. you know. Um, so when it gets around to all the other groups that I'm affiliated with, all the people that I'm cool with, they're like, look, man, just be cool. I got you. I'm like, but I've always been. Protected. I've never been comfortable with being protected. I decided to move move by myself. So when the first bell rang for uh, for us to leave um, school, legitimately, I left. And I had a friend of mine's little brother with me because he had gotten his hands on a box of guns. And I was like, oh, I need two of those. I'm coming with you. He was like, cool. And we get to the bus stop. 
But at the bus stop, well, when I left the school, he saw that I was leaving. So a bunch of them packed up, and their intention was to kill me and leave me at the bus stop, honestly. And but God made me God made me a very good runner for a reason. Because <laughs> when I saw them coming and I saw how many of them were coming, I was like, whoa. And a friend of mine, and I haven't talked to her since I've been home, but I, I want to. She asked me, she said, what's going on? I said, they trying, they, they, they came to me. I said, y'all just act like y'all don't know me. And I'm, and I'm about to get out of here. And uh, they chased me for about, hmm, I want to say about 10 blocks. And actually the fastest ones chased me. They actually shot at me first. They shot at me a couple times. But I was diving through alleys and jumping fences and all that other stuff. And I got to Exeter, the street that I, that I live off of, the main street that I, well, basically I grew up off of. And I turned around, and there was still about six or seven of them, and they were winded, you know, they on the other side of the street, and I was like, come across the street. Come on. Y'all want me so bad, come get me. They was like, well, you got to come back to school. Thought about that, and was like, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and I didn't. I told my mother, I said, yeah, I can't go back. She said, well, I said, because they're going to kill me if I go back. And they're, they're gunning for me hard. And so for, for a little while, I kind of kind of just floated around for a couple of days. And then she managed, to, she managed to talk to the people at the area office, and they got me transferred to another school. And I was there for two weeks, and I caught my case. And that was it. I went on the run, stayed on the run about a month. And then I got locked up October 25th, 1993. And I didn't see the street again until 2018. You got to like it when someone you're interviewing gives you that natural soundbite that is the ending to a show or to an episode. It's kind of like, you know, back in the good old days with TV when it would just end. They would they would have that perfect moment as a break, right, for a commercial, and then you'd pick back up again. So make sure you tune in next week for the conclusion of my conversation with Kyle, and we'll find out exactly what he's up to now, where he was, what jail was like, and um, where he's at now. In the meantime, make sure you are liking us, subscribing to us, sharing our information website is theoptionalfacts.com on Facebook on Instagram we are the optional facts on Twitter DH Tomlinson until then until next week like us share subscribe give us a review and we'll see you next week everybody on the optional facts